0: If you'd like to follow me in your Bibles, please turn to Luke 7. I'll be reading the first five verses. Luke 7, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant, whom his master valued very highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. You may be seated. Thank you for our reading tonight, and thank you for the scripture reading and the singing. Very beautiful singing tonight. Very grateful for everyone's presence, and we're appreciative of everyone who was with us today in our worship service this morning and now tonight. So encouraging to have you with us. Uh, Such an important uh, occasion that brings us together, the worship of God. And I'm just very grateful that we have the opportunity to worship God together, I've ask that this passage be read in chapter 7 of the book of Luke. And if you'll be patient with me, I'd like to uh, kind of work my way into uh, our discussion tonight about the Pharisee and the sinful woman. I think it's an important lesson, and a lesson that I think uh, quite a bit about. Not necessarily this particular chapter, but this particular point, and that's about forgiveness. How important forgiveness really is. Uh, I wish I could stand before you tonight. And just say to you that I've never committed a sin. I wish I could say that, but I can't say it. No one can say that. No one can stand before another crowd or anyone else and say, I've never committed sin. I wish I could say that, but I can't. I can stand before you tonight and say that I'm grateful for the forgiveness that God has given. And I can stand before you tonight and say that I'm very grateful for the grace that God has bestowed upon me. He's blessed me just much more than I would ever imagine. And that's so true. I think every one of us, I'm not unique in that regard at all, every one of us can stand before another or say to a friend or say to a neighbor, look what God has done for me. He's blessed me. And the greatest blessing that God has given to any of us is the blessing of forgiveness. We live in a beautiful world. We often think about how beautiful the world is. And we're grateful to God for the world in which we live and how wonderful it is that we have these wonderful blessings. But we also have wonderful forgiveness. Those who've been obedient to the gospel of Christ and continue to live the gospel message every day of their lives come to grow in appreciation of what forgiveness really means and how wonderful it is. And I want to talk about that tonight. And I want to illustrate that from the standpoint of this sinful woman and this Pharisee. You see the Pharisee was an individual who's filled with judgment. Uh, hypercritical of everyone and everything. Thought of himself as being better than everybody else. And here's a sinful woman. Now, I'll explain the context of the story. But she was filled with thanksgiving. Because of the forgiveness which she had received. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul talks about living the Christian life. Isn't that an important lesson? An important subject? He goes through a number of points there. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. And now verse 27. He says, And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give uh, grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This idea of living the Christian life and the characteristics and qualities that we of Christians have and should possess is one whereby he says, now do not grieve the Spirit of God. To grieve the Spirit of God is to go against the Spirit of God. To the Spirit of God is to go against the teaching and the revelation of the Holy Spirit of God. Listen carefully to what the Holy Spirit is telling and then follow along with it and receive the forgiveness that we need and the grace that we so desperately need. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus was addressing a group of people, the Jewish leaders of his day, the Pharisees. And as Jesus got closer and closer to the cross, his language became more pointed with regard to their need. He called them in Matthew chapter 23, uh, hypocrites. He called them, the scribes and the Pharisees, hypocrites. They were filled uh, with rejection and wouldn't listen to the will of God. And woe to the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus said, because they had rejected the will and the word of God. I don't want to be that kind of person. I want to consider the greatness of forgiveness something that takes place in the mind of God, that He offers me grace, He offers me forgiveness, and by obedient faith, then I consider that particular matter and respond properly to Him. So that gives us a synopsis of what I want to establish tonight. I want to establish the greatness of forgiveness. I want us to grow in our appreciation of it. So much so that if there is anyone in the hearing of this lesson tonight who has not received God's divine forgiveness, then do that tonight. If there is something that you need to do in order to repent of sin and amend your life properly according to the divine text, then I hope that you'll do that tonight. And also enjoy the forgiveness that God has to offer each and every individual. As you've heard me say so many times, it doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter how deep into sin we may have transgressed. The matter is, if we'll give the sin up and repent of our sins and turn our lives over to the will of God and follow it faithfully, He'll forgive us of our sins. And so I want to consider this matter of forgiveness. To do that, though, I want to work into this chapter 7 of the uh, the book of Luke. And I want to study this amazing chapter for a brief moment. And I'll summarize this because I believe the context will help us in our study tonight. There's a lot of material in the 7th chapter of the book of uh, Luke. And as we read already, he's talking about, Luke is talking about Jesus going to Capernaum. And there, this centurion has a servant that he really loves. And as we we'll go through this paragraph, we'll see how the love of God is there to help that man. And the Jews come to him and said, please help that man if you can. Because he's been so good to us. And he actually paid for the synagogue and built a synagogue for us. And Jesus, as he begins to go this individual, this Gentile, sends servants out there, and he tells him, now don't come to my house. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus was so impressed with the uh, faith of this particular man, even though he was a Gentile. And his servant was healed immediately, Jesus miraculously healing that individual. As he leaves the city and goes to the city of Nain, he comes to the gate of the city, and there is a funeral procession. It's about 25 miles southwest of where he was in Capernaum. He's traveling along, and now a widow has lost her son. She's received a double reversal in life. She is a widow. Now she's lost her only son. And as we read the story, Jesus walks up to the stretcher that they're carrying the decedent on, and he touches the stretcher. He doesn't touch the boy that had died. And he says to the young man, I say to you, Arise. The Greek text is a little more specific here when it uses a passive form of the verb. It simply means be raised. In other words, the rising or the coming back to life was not inherent in the dead boy, but it was inherent in the power of God. This was done to him. Be raised. And immediately the boy came to life. And the young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. It's a tender touch in the story. Jesus giving the dead boy back to his mother. When I read that, you know what comes to my mind? I wonder what that young man said. I wonder when he came back to life and he spoke to Jesus, what did he say? But the Holy Spirit didn't tell us. And Luke's pen does not record the conversation that he had with the Lord. All we have from the book of Luke is that Jesus gave the young man back to his grieving mother. The bewilderment of the disciples of John after seeing all of these particular matters now comes to Jesus with a startling question Are you the one? John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And an interesting answer is given. You and I might say, well, yes, I'm the one, if that question had been posed to us. But Jesus didn't answer in that fashion. This is how we answered the query of the disciples of John. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Then he begins to talk about John and the qualities of John. And he says, of all men born of women, there's none like John the Baptist. But yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Talking about the wonderful relationship that we have with Christ now as disciples of our Lord being in Christ by means of the new birth, John chapter 3. And he starts talking about the baptism of John. And then you begin to see something about this particular matter. In verse 28, and it's telling telling us, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and all the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But, verse 30, the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. They had rejected the baptism of John. They had heard the preaching of John, but yet they had rejected the preaching of John. They would not consider the forgiveness that God had to offer them. And in that regard, though I'm sure very curious over the matter, they would go out and look and watch and observe. But they looked down upon them. They looked down upon John and would not submit to the baptism of John, a rejection of the forgiveness which God has to offer And that brings us to our study tonight, beginning actually in verse 36. And you may think, well, it's a while getting to this point, but I believe the total context is much more beneficial for us to read and study and grow in our appreciation of the things which are going to take place tonight. You're going to read about a Pharisee. A Pharisee who has rejected the baptism of John and now is considering the matter of Christ. You're going to read and study tonight uh, not only about this Pharisee, but this sinful woman. The sinful woman who comes and bathes the feet of our Lord with with her own tears and anoints him in such a fashion, giving praise and glory to him. So let's consider these particular matters tonight. Let's discuss for a brief moment about the Pharisee, first of all. The Pharisees were people who thought of themselves as being the superior religious people of the day. The Pharisees were people who thought of themselves above everybody else. They looked down upon everyone else. They did not consider themselves to be common people at all. They considered themselves to be the spiritually and intellectual elite of their time and of their culture. I don't know why the Pharisee invited Jesus for supper that night. The motive is not actually clear or given in so many words in the paragraph. I assume from the paragraph that the motive behind this particular invitation is to find out more about Jesus. Perhaps he's curious. Here Jesus has raised this woman's son, the widow of Nain. Here Jesus at Capernaum, he's healed the servant without even being there where the servant was. Here he's talking to the disciples of John and explaining his work and his mission, how that the blind receive their sight and the dead are raised again and the gospel is preached unto them. This probably has raised a lot of curiosity within the heart of Simon the Pharisee. And he invites Jesus to his house for dinner. Now whatever the motive might have been, Jesus accepts the invitation this within itself would be some problematic for some people because this Pharisee was such a self-righteous individual. Jesus is invited. Why he invited Jesus? I just don't know. I can only imagine it was out of intellectual curiosity as to what Jesus might say or do or just to get to know Jesus a little bit better. Whatever the reason might have been, it was good enough. Because Jesus accepted the invitation. There are some people that are that way. They have an intellectual curiosity with regard to the Bible. They have a type of intellectual curiosity with regard to the teaching of Christ. When it comes down to actually doing it, it's quite a different matter. But they have an intellectual curiosity there. Pray that the intellectual curiosity leads them to the point of faithful gospel obedience. You know the painting by Leonardo da Vinci... Where there Christ is there in the center, and the disciples on each side of him, him, is not really accurate with regard to the dining procedures of the day. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, verse thirty-six, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. For them to recline at the table—that was the posture or the position. For eating the meal. The table was low to the floor. And it was in more of a horseshoe shape. Da Vinci's depiction is more of a straight kind of table. With everybody lined up behind that. Jesus in the center. And it's a marvelous painting. But it's not really accurate as to the time and the customs of the day. It was more of a horseshoe type of affair. And they were in the inside of the horseshoe. They would lean on cushions with their left hand, left arm, and left elbow. And they would eat off the table with the right hand and they would face one another and converse with one another. And this is the position most likely that Jesus is taking as the text tells us and reclined at the table. And you might wonder well how can that be? Well it's because of the custom of the day and the way that they would eat the meal. Behold a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisees house. Brought an alabaster flask of ointment here there's a different reason for seeing Jesus. The Pharisee, the separatist, which is what the word means. This fellow who was an expert in the oral law invites Jesus to come and dine with him. You know, it's amazing as I think about it. Just as a caveat here, perhaps better a footnote would be a better word for it. You know, you have the word, for example, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Isn't that simple enough? Do you know that they added to that command over 300 rules and regulations to that in the oral traditions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Jewish leaders would embellish the word and add to the word and try to make that embellishment and those additions to the word law. And they'd try to say that's just as authoritative as the actual written word of God. 300 rules and regulations relating to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's what they had done to the Word of God. Modifying it and changing it and adding to it, which they had no right and no authority to do. But here's a woman. She comes to Jesus. There she's filled with gratitude over what Jesus has done. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisees' house, brought an alabaster flax of ointment, alabaster stone. And she brought this stone flask that was filled with ointment. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her, of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. It's not the kind of behavior we would expect to see in Western culture, is it? Now, when you were invited to a guest, to be a guest at someone's house, and you were invited there, water would be provided to wash your hands. And then a servant would come in and wash your feet. You see, they wore sandals, and they walked from place to place. And the countryside was not ribboned with all sorts of interstate highways and paved roads. Where they walked, perhaps a beast of burden might carry them from place to place. And it was a custom, an oriental custom, to wash a guest's feet and to greet him as he would come into the house and show him some kind of hospitality by means of anointing him with a fragrance which was refreshing. It was a kindness of the time. Now when Jesus is invited to the house of Simon, Jesus was given no greeting when he came in. Jesus was given nothing to wash his hands or his feet. He was given no greeting, no washing. He was not shown the regular hospitality that people would of the day. But yet this woman comes in, and she washes his feet. Only she washes his feet with her tears. She dries his feet with her hair. I don't know what has gone on here with regard to Jesus and what he's done for this woman. But she's grateful. Her heart is filled with gratitude. Look what he has done. Now the text is very clear. She was a sinner. And she was well known as being a sinner. I don't know what all that would involve in this particular context. But at any rate, Jesus sat down with public sinners and ate with them. No one was too good or too bad for Jesus to sit down and eat with them and help them. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, this is just like a Pharisee. I'll get to that in a moment. Very judgmental. By judgmental, I simply mean overly critical excessively critical this woman has come before Jesus grateful for what Jesus has done but the Pharisee sees this now he doesn't say anything about it but he begins to reason this way now when the Pharisee saw who had invited him saw this he said to himself if this man were a prophet he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who has touched him for she is a sinner And Jesus answered, saying to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And he begins to go into this wonderful parable. Before I talk about the parable, I want to talk about what's going on in the mind of Simon. Jesus knew. You see John chapter 2. John 2 tells us Jesus knows the hearts and the minds of men. Simon didn't have to say a word. Jesus already knew what was going on in Simon's mind. He knew that Simon was very judgmental, where he had no right to be judgmental. Jesus had talked about this in Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The lesson given to us in Matthew chapter 7, a very famous passage, verses 1 through 5, is a lesson that is saying, you know, don't criticize other people when you're guilty of the same thing yourself. First, get rid of the sin in your own life, then help that person get rid of the sin in their life. But don't criticize a person, and the whole time you're doing the same thing, and the whole time you're just as guilty as they are. Simon, very judgmental in this particular matter, he says, now that woman's a sinner. And if he were a prophet, he would know what kind of person she is. And he wouldn't let her do that. Therefore, she mu- he must not be a prophet. That's his argument. That's his reasoning. The mistakes in the major premise in saying that Jesus, if Jesus were a prophet, he'd know and wouldn't let that woman do anything or touch him in such a matter or such a fashion. Now Jesus launches into the parable. Now I'd like to discuss the parable just very briefly for you so that we can get the import of this whole matter. And then I hope that I'll be able to bring all these items together to a sharp focus. In the parable that Jesus gave, knowing the thinking and the argumentation of Simon, he said there's a man who had two debtors. And, of course, being a debtor in ancient times was a serious matter. Uh, it could mean incarceration. It could mean uh, slavery. Uh, there are all kinds of remedies in ancient times with regard to satisfying unpaid debts. Not paying a debt is a serious matter. It's a serious matter now. It was certainly a serious matter then. So this definitely got Simon's attention. There' a man who had two debts, two debtors. Now this one man, he owed 500 denarii, and here's another who owed 50 denarii. The parable is given for us in verses 42 on through verse 50. And I'll not read all of the content of the parable, and I'll leave that for you. Let's say in more modern language, here's a man who owed $100, and here's another man over here that owed the same man $10. Here's a man who owed a lot. Here's a a man who owed, but he didn't owe as much. And so he asked the question. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Then Simon, no doubt, verse 43, begins to roll this around in his mind. He said, then I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. You see, Simon's already trapped and he doesn't know it. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then he goes on into the discussion which I gave just a moment ago about how the woman had given him his, this kiss. But she didn't just kiss him, she kissed his feet. And how that this woman washed his feet But she didn't just wash his feet. She washed his feet with her tears. And she anointed him. But she didn't just anoint him. She anointed him with this perfume. Because she loved much. She understood more about the joy of being forgiven than a man like Simon. As good a man as Simon might have been, even though I've talked about and tried to describe how Jesus would characterize the Pharisees of his day. They were very religious people. As good a man as he might have been, he didn't have the kind of love and the kind of devotion and the kind of care that he should have had with regard to forgiveness. This woman had received the forgiveness of God. Something that had taken place in the mind of God with regard to her and her character. And Jesus had bestowed this wonderful forgiveness. In his heart, he looks at us, that is God. And in that, he sees an individual who has offended him and guilty of sin. In his heart, he loves us, that is God himself. And in turn, wants us to obey him and receive his forgiveness. That's the goodness of God. And may we never, ever minimize the significance of the fact God has forgiven me of my sins. Now, I wanted to make as much application as I could to the matter, so I just asked the question, what can I do? How can I really show my appreciation and thanks for the grace of God? How can I show my continued regard for what forgiveness really means and what forgiveness really is. That God no longer is holding me accountable for the sins which I've committed. How can I show that this is such a great thing in my life? And so I ask the question, what can I do? Jesus is not here uh, as much as I might like. I cannot wash his feet with my tears. Do you you know, folks came to me and they said, you remember." Uh, how that the woman uh, washed the feet of Jesus, and how that Jesus washed the apostles' feet. Why don't we have a service where we wash each other's feet? And this one said something, that one said something, that one said something, and it came to me and said, I said, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing that. It's not because I'm not humble or try to be humble. But that misses the point altogether with this particular matter of washing the disciples' feet and this woman washing the feet of Jesus with her tears. It misses it top, side, and bottom. Feet that are clean already. That is not the issue that's being presented in this particular passage. We are not espousing, nor are we told to wash one another's feet in a fashion, some kind of meaningless ceremony, to try to show other people how humble we are. What can I do? I can't wash the feet of Jesus. I'm not interested in being in some kind of shallow, meaningless ceremony that the Bible doesn't authorize to try to wash somebody else's feet. what can I do to show, to understand better how wonderful it is really to be forgiven of sin and to receive the grace of God and live in the grace of God day by day? And what a joy it is to know The mistakes which I have made in the past have been forgiven and blotted out of God's divine book of remembrance and will be remembered no more. What can I do? One, I can live in obedient faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God and I can live by that Word of God. I grow in my conviction of God. I grow in my love for God. I grow in my appreciation for God. I grow in my trust in God. When God says something, I trust it. I know it's true. I grow in my obedience to the will of God. That's what faith really means. Conviction in God. Trust in God and His Word. And obedient action. Motivated by that faith. What can I do? Jesus is not here. I cannot anoint him with a flask of oil. He's not here. I cannot wash his feet with my tears. He's not here. I cannot dry his feet with my hair. What can I do? I'm not commanded to do that to begin. What can I I can live by obedient faith. I can live day by day studying the Word of God and growing in that conviction that I trust God And I'm going to do what God says. And even though the temptation is here, the pull is there, I'm going to resist that. I'm going to do the best that I can to resist. I'm going to say no to that because now I'm living by faith. I've been forgiven. And I know something of the joy of forgiveness. What can I do? I'll tell you what I can do. I can use my influence Can you imagine all the people that you know? All the people that saw Jesus. You know, you may be able to argue with a theological point. But you can't argue with an example. When a person is living it day by day. And that influence is experienced by others. You may be able to try to argue a theological point here and there. You can't argue an example. Something that's lived day by day. What can I do as an expression of the gratitude I have for the grace of God and the love of God and the forgiveness that takes place in the heart of God? I can use my influence to help other people. Jesus talked about letting our light shine before men. That they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. That passage is in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus talked about being salt, making this world a little better place to live because of what you and I are doing in helping others understand the Word of God and understand it better. What can I do? I can worship God. You're here tonight. To worship God. It is an expression of our thanksgiving. For forgiveness of sin. We've been baptized into Christ. For the remission of our sins. Acts 2 verse 38. We've repented of those sins. Luke 13 and 3. God commands all men everywhere to repent. We have confessed our faith in Jesus Christ. That he's the son of God. Romans 10, 9 and 10. And we come together. To worship together in one place and express that joy and that love which we have for God and for one another. And these men stand before us and they lead us in these very fervent prayers. Very scriptural prayers and I'm very grateful for every prayer that's offered from this pulpit. And I listen very carefully to each and every word and I apply it to myself. What can I do? I can worship God. I can train and discipline my mind to focus on my praise of God. And I don't let my mind wander. I try my best to channel it and focus it in the right direction. This morning that communion plate was passed. That bread representing the body of Christ and the fruit of the vine representing the blood of Christ. I'm thinking about the importance of that sacrifice. And that shed blood and what it means. And I am to be thinking about the fact that that shed blood now continually cleanses and cleanses and cleanses as I continue to walk in the light, First John chapter 1. What can I do? No, it's not a matter of washing somebody's feet in a shallow type of ceremony. It's a matter of living my faith day by day. And worshiping God as I should worship Him. i tell you what I can do. I can study my Bible. I can read from the book divine. And I can learn more and more about God's divine will for my life. I want to try to express and show my love for God and my love for what He has done for me and the joy that I have in the forgiveness of my sins. And how can that be expressed in my life today? It can be expressed by my study of His Word. The continual study and learning and applying what God has done and said. I don't know if you're like me, i suppose we're all like that but if i don't study a certain passage for any length of time i tend to forget it i tend to forgive it forget its force and its thrust and then i'll go back sometime later either in my own personal study of the bible or preparing for some lesson or preparing for a sermon i thought oh yeah i remember that now what a great passage that is. What a great verse of Scripture. that really It's been a long time since I've visited that verse. It's been a long time since I've gone back over that verse, and I need to do that again. And I need to go back through this book again. I need to go back through this book and reread this book and just sort of immerse myself in the content of the book because I want to remember this as best as I possibly can. It is an expression of thanksgiving. For what God has done for me. What God has done for you. In forgiving us of our sins. And giving us this wonderful grace. Which we so desperately need. That woman really expressed herself. Now the Pharisee. He just didn't get it. He didn't see the love. He didn't see the joy. Of forgiven sin. But the woman. She knew what Jesus had done for her, and He had changed her life. And He will change your life if you will come to know the joy of forgiven sin by repenting of your sins, by confessing your faith in Christ, and by being baptized into Christ for forgiveness, for remission. And all of those sins washed away by the love of God. I believe I'm speaking tonight to people who have love and gratitude in their hearts and they express that. We are forgiven people. Do we commit sin from time to time? I have to say yes to that. The struggle with sin is never over, is it? It's something that we work with and battle against and we arm ourselves against with our continued study of the Word of God. And when we commit sin, we repent of that sin. And we turn back to God and we determine in our heart and mind, I'm not going to do that again. Or I am going to do what I should be doing, but I failed to do it because I was negligent in the matter. I did not do due diligence with this or that, and I know I should have. And I'm going to do it better this time. Any number of illustrations could be brought up in life. And you understand exactly what I'm talking about. Man, I wish I hadn't have done that. The joy of the matter is, it's all forgiven. Because I repented of the sin. And I've been baptized into Christ. And I'm living the Christian life to the best of my ability. And when I go to bed at night, You know, I go to sleep. There's a sense of satisfaction there, knowing that I've lived for God this day, and I've done my best. And if I have opportunity to live another day, I'll do the very best I can on that day. That's what it means to be a Christian, and that's what it means to receive the joy of forgiveness. And God wants that for you, for everyone. If you've never obeyed the gospel tonight, I urge you to do it and experience the joy of forgiveness. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.